Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on the Ending Abuse podcast, where we examine the change necessary to end violence and center our understanding that all oppression is connected. As the statewide coalition against domestic violence, Wisconsin survivors and advocates are at the very center of the work we do here at End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin, commonly referred to as End Abuse. We drive policy, legal, and educational initiatives that promote social change, and we envision communities that are fully mobilized to ensure the dignity of all. Please note that our discussions do cover sensitive topics, including firsthand accounts of violence, so we ask that you keep this in mind for yourself and for anyone else you're listening with today. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline 24-7 at 1-800-787-SAFE. That's 1-800-787-7233. They can connect you with local resources and help you find safety. I'm Elise Bookbinder, the Education and Communications Coordinator here at End Abuse. On today's very first episode called Coming Home, we explore the topic of housing as it relates to domestic violence. Housing has been identified as a top issue for domestic violence victims and survivors across the country, but particularly so here in Wisconsin. In fact, we know that from a 2017 national point in time census from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, 87% of unmet requests for services here in Wisconsin were for housing. That paints a pretty dire picture and it lets us know that today's focus on safe and affordable housing is a really essential one. Today, we'll hear the story of a survivor's experience in her own words. We'll also look at the Wisconsin policy landscape surrounding housing with two end abuse public policy experts and we'll let you know how to learn more and how to stay involved. We've also included a few pieces of poetry throughout the episode, knowing that artistic expression can be a healing way to find voice and discuss trauma. So in staying true to our commitment to putting survivors' voices at the forefront of all of our work, we'll begin today's episode with a poem by Sue Perry. Sue is the 2016 recipient of the Courage Award from the Wisconsin Governor's Council on Domestic Abuse. You'll hear in a moment how Sue's words bring us back to the very raw experience of abuse. This lived reality of individuals experiencing abuse is so central to why access to safe and affordable housing is a major priority for our coalition. Here is Sue reading her original piece titled, Desperate to Find Shelter. Nowhere to go, nowhere to go, nowhere to go. Desperate to find shelter, despondent to escape, filled with hopelessness. Who will understand? How will I divulge? Why would they believe? Horrendous assaults, bruises and fractures, broken heart filled with betrayal. Searing words, damaged psyche, destructive names, wounded self-esteem, dominance, overwhelming fear. So I stay, 
molded by his presence, immobilized by terror. I must be brave. No shelters in 1975. Run to a friend's home. Confused. Believe those names. I return again. I return again. I return again. Those are some really powerful words from Sue. Um, We're very thankful that she shared them with us. Uh, Unfortunately, we do know that many of the themes that she touches on in her poem, things like having nowhere to go, returning to abuse, um, the desperation, and that that feeling of fear, um, they're all really relatable to other people who have struggled to find a new and safe home as they try to leave abusive situations. Um, So we want to just encourage our listeners to keep Sue's really intimate words in mind as we explore a pretty complex topic of housing. Um, Now I'd want to introduce Renee Greenland, uh, who has very graciously agreed to open up and share um, her story and her lived experience with us. When Renee was first sharing her story with uh, and abuse staff, and as we were kind of brainstorming and developing the podcast, we discovered how powerful it was when Renee's survivor story would be um, told all at once, without interruption, um, just in her own voice. And so with that, Renee, we'd love for you to share your poetry and your story with our listeners. Thank you, Elise. I'd like to dedicate this podcast to the memory of my late dad, Alan Greenland, and I'll begin my story with his favorite poem of mine, written many years ago. The day I was born is the day I was torn from Mother Earth's womb. If I could weave my life on a loom, the brilliant colors would blind me. If I could write a poem on my tombstone, maybe Great Spirit could find me. If I could string the days like beads, I would make a necklace of all my wasted youth, carefree and reckless. If I could gather the minutes and hours, I would have the most beautiful bouquet of flowers. I awoke into this world a homeless orphan. Many are not aware that the average age of a person experiencing homelessness is about nine years old due to the number of children who are born and raised in such dire circumstances. In the first years of my life, I bounced from institution to foster home and back several times. My tiny prayers were answered when a loving family adopted me at the age of three. By that tender age, Numerous experiences with adult situations had forced me to grow up very quickly. I was in essence my own nurturer and protector in those early years, which as we know are the most important years of childhood development. Through the lens of trauma-informed care, we now have a better understanding of how significant early trauma actually changes the way a child's brain develops and can cause severe damage. It's fascinating for me to identify how this has affected me personally, But it's also heartbreaking, watching very young children being separated from their families and knowing intimately how it will deeply and profoundly affect them for the rest of their lives. 
I am so very grateful to be one of the lucky ones who was adopted. Working with young people aging out of the foster care system, I realized what a true blessing I was given. Throughout the years, my mom and dad provided me with many wonderful opportunities for education and travel, exploring the world and learning about different cultures. I lived a very happy life until the tragic death of my adopted brother Johnny tore my family apart when I was 10 years old. As my parents struggled to cope with the shock and pain of losing a child, I was mostly left alone to fend for myself without much adult support to guide and protect me. I struggled to find my footing throughout my teens and 20s, feeling very lost and disconnected from the rest of the world. I continued to experience various traumatic situations, including a date rape in high school that had lasting repercussions on my young life. I somehow managed to get through those difficult years without professional help, but many years later, when I was fleeing domestic violence and living in my car, every painful memory from my past would come flooding back at once and nearly drown me. When I met him, I had a successful career at a foreign language translation agency in Madison, and I was finally beginning to thrive and find my place in the world. I started a membership at the Princeton Club and became involved in a relationship with a bodybuilder who was helping me reach my fitness goals. He initially presented as a kind, gentle, loving, and attentive partner. It all seemed quite innocent and fun, in some ways, like a dream come true. Many months later, he tore his bicep at the gym, took a medical leave from his job, and stopped taking his medication. That's when I met a very different version of this person for the first time. I was locked into a year lease with him by the time those rippling red flags and warning signs began to manifest. The manipulation and threats began in earnest, and financial abuse was swiftly sneaking in while he was off work on medical leave. He reconnected with brothers who were criminally dangerous and invited them to our apartment. His bipolar mania and hallucinations began a dangerous cycle of sleep deprivation that was turning my life upside down. Then he went back on his medication, back to work, and it all just seemed like a bad dream. But unfortunately, the real nightmare was yet to come. The next time he went off his meds and I was attempting to leave him, he began to physically harm me with the intention of making it impossible for me to leave. This led to two trips to the ER, where he made sure he was there so I would stick to the story that I had injured my back at the gym and my knee at the water park. In reality, my back injury was due to sexual assault, and I sustained nerve damage in my knee from him grabbing me by my hair and throwing me across the room into a wall. I fled for good soon thereafter, but by that time, he had emptied my small savings account, done significant damage to my vehicle, isolated me from friends and family, abused an aging pet who did not survive. He even stole my identity and committed fraud, all while deliberately chipping away at my fragile self-esteem and confidence. It's still very difficult to look back on that time in my life and remember how lost and broken I had become how afraid I was. When I finally gathered the courage, the only way I could afford to leave was to quit my job so I can access a meager 401k. The latest data show that 83% of domestic abuse survivors report that their abusive partners disrupted their ability to work or get an education, with more than half losing a job because of the abusive situation. 
Had I known there were resources available to help me, I could have avoided losing everything I'd worked so hard for. But I had no idea that what I was experiencing even had a name, domestic violence, and there were agencies with services that could have helped me avoid becoming homeless. Without that knowledge, a clear mind to make good decisions, and a strong support network, my life quickly spiraled out of control and I found myself living in my car. That's where I celebrated my 40th birthday, homeless and feeling desperately hopeless. It's truly a miracle that I survived to tell the tale as I came very close to taking my own life during that time. I had literally lost everything, even the car I had been living in, and I could no longer see any potential for a positive outcome in my life. I was suffering from the debilitating effects of PTSD, which had yet to be diagnosed, and I truly believed that my life was over. After living in my car for several months, I was couch surfing at a house in Sauk City during the fall and winter of 2011 and was suffering from severe PTSD symptoms and depression. When my car was repossessed, I began to experience extreme agoraphobia and was afraid to leave the house, except for an occasional trip to buy groceries and a few trips to the library to check out books and research hypothermia online. In early 2012, I decided that during the next snowstorm, I would plunge myself into the icy waters of the Wisconsin River. But that snowstorm never came. If you recall, in very early spring of 2012, Wisconsin and a large portion of North America experienced one of the greatest heat waves in recorded history for that time of year, with temperatures well into the 80s for days on end. I have to laugh now, remembering that at the time, I was actually angry that the weather was foiling my plans to take my life. I had finally made peace with my decision, but by that time, the river had melted, and so had my resolve. A random phone call from a dear friend revealed to her that I desperately needed help in recovering my life. She contacted Hope House of South Central Wisconsin, a domestic violence shelter located in Baraboo, and arranged for me to seek emergency shelter and services there. Moving there was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I felt like a complete failure. I felt helpless and extremely vulnerable. But as I continued to reach out and receive guidance and support from caring advocates at Hope House and my homeless case manager at Central Wisconsin Community Action Council, and as I began to welcome the support of other women on a similar journey, I slowly started to come out of my shell and believe I was a human being once again. I had completely lost myself in the experience and didn't ever think I would be me again. If you could go back in time, you wouldn't likely recognize me as the same person, as I was so emotionally damaged that I could hardly make eye contact or speak a coherent sentence. It's something I want people to think about when they see a homeless person, that what they see on the surface, the utter despair, the vacant stare, the disheveled appearance, may bear little resemblance to that person's true self and hidden potential. It took a lot of time and patience for me to start to regain my confidence and abilities, and I am very thankful for all the support I received from so many people along the way. It's so important that the public be aware of the resources available to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. People need to know how they can find help for themselves, their friends, their family members, 
even to help an acquaintance or stranger in need who is experiencing any kind of abuse or violence and may not have access to a supportive person who can be there for them. It's the reason why I so openly share my painful journey, so I can bring hope to survivors that there is a better life out there waiting for them. One of the most helpful things for my healing and recovery has been hearing others' survivors, courageous stories, and witnessing their success. In turn, I share my story so others feel less alone as they reach out for help and dive into an unknown world of infinite uncertainties when they leave an abusive situation. Had these resources not been there to help me, I'm not sure what would have become of me. It's very unlikely I would be advocating on a statewide level for people experiencing homelessness and abuse. We need to keep a close eye on any legislation that would restrict, reduce, or eliminate funding and other services and make sure those resources stay in place to allow victims and their families to have a safe place to start healing and puzzling back together the scattered pieces of their lives to begin to feel like a whole picture once again. Because of my own experience with domestic violence and homelessness, I know firsthand that it can happen to anyone, oftentimes quite abruptly and unexpectedly. Many people have preconceived notions and prejudices about the people who experience these issues, but you can never really know how a person got where they are until you speak with them in a caring, respectful, and non-judgmental way. With the recent spike in natural disasters such as fires, floods, and earthquakes, there are many more people becoming homeless each day than the current system can support. The affordable housing crisis has quickly become a housing catastrophe. With the country's and the Earth's population continuing to grow exponentially, where do we expect these brand new human beings to live when they come of age, when we can't even begin to support our current population? We have so much wealth and so many resources in this country. There's no good reason that people have to live on the streets or in their cars or in other places not safe for human habitation. It will take significant restructuring of our current system to recreate our society into the more compassionate and equitable place that we all deserve to live in. That is my lofty life goal and I have dedicated my life to helping empower survivors of abuse and homelessness to lead safe, successful, happy, fulfilling lives. The day I die will be the day my spirit flies back into the universal mind. If I could strum my life like a guitar, the music would impress me. If I could paint clouds in the heavens, maybe Great Spirit would bless me. If I could carve the months I've lived into a marble statue, great and tall, it would hold out open arms so I could catch you if you fall. If I could grow a rose for every memory in my mind, I would have the most amazing rose garden I could find. Thank you so much, Renee. I, um, I want to let our listeners know that while learning to live with PTSD, Renee has found her passion for helping to end homelessness in Wisconsin and beyond Wisconsin. Um, for the past five years, she's been uh, representing the voice of homelessness throughout the state. 
as the formerly homeless representative on the board of directors for the Wisconsin Balance of State Continuum of Care, um, which is the nonprofit organization tasked with ending homelessness in 69 counties across Wisconsin. It's been truly a joy working with you and hearing your story, Renee, Um, and we really feel grateful toward all that you've been willing to contribute and to share. Um, I know our our listeners will also really appreciate that you came and told your story. Um, We also wanted to mention our gratitude toward Hope House of South Central Wisconsin in Baraboo. Renee mentioned them as she was speaking. Um, They're a member program of the coalition, and um, as mentioned, they really have played a a pretty vital role in helping to Renee to find uh, safety and creating a new home for herself. Um, You can learn more about Hope House and uh, things like how to volunteer and how to donate and what services they provide um, at their website, which is hopehousescw.org. So I'd like to turn things over to Angie now, who is our operations coordinator here at End Abuse. Um, She's a published poet and an activist and an all-around very creative and very lovely person. Um, And Angie's offered to help out with our next main segment, segment where we're going to interview our policy experts on housing. Um, Before we transition into that interview, though, Angie, maybe you could introduce uh, one other poem that we wanted to share with our listeners. Thank you, Elise. So lovely to be here with you. Uh, This next poem on what is by Sean Muhammad, the associate director of the ASHA Project, which is out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that is a project of End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin. And they focus on uh, the same work we do, but do direct services. Now let's listen to On What by Sean Muhammad. She... Took out a loan to pay a loan just to get a loan. Spitting image of a mama, they don't get along. Shorty never knew a father, now he dead and gone. She's lost trying to find herself inside a rap song. But the rapper, he just taught her how to bust down. Broken soul with a baby, who to trust now? He got a stripping and stripping led to prostitution. Human trafficking and African packaging and Meanwhile she left her daughter with her mother And every other week a nana got a new lover And when nana don't be looking y'all This niggas like to touch her And it seems the abuse family only made it tougher Rather play in the gutter than go inside and suffer Started getting messed up Couldn't deal with it sober When mama comes back to get me though This'll be over Got a call from them people. Mom's died in Minnesota. On what? Now allow me to uh, break down for anybody who's not familiar with hood vernacular the term on what. Now on what comes into play when you have two people having a conversation and one person just tells them something that's unbelievable, something that's astonishing. You know, the other person is like, in order for you to make that valid, you need to put it on something. For instance, you know, I put that on my mother's life. I put that on my children's life. I put that on my grandmother's grave. You know, I put that on everything I love. You know, so depending on what it is that you put uh, it on, Uh, determines how valid the statement is that you make so that's where the term on what comes from and uh 
you know, also, I guess I would have to apologize for using the N-word, but, you know, that's the way we talk in hood vernacular. Um, also, I guess the term bust down would also need some explanation. Bust down in hood vernacular or in ghetto jargon simply means a woman or girl that is promiscuous, that has a lot of sexual partners, or that may have sex for money, or may have sex just to use you to get a favor from you. So that's what the term bust down means, and I know that I use that in this particular piece. So I thank you all for lending me your ear, and I pray that what I said uh, finds root in your heart as well. With that being said, peace. That was a poem on what by Sean Mohammed, showing the intersection of homelessness with young women being trafficked. That is the work that they do in North Milwaukee at the Asha Project. Now we're going to transition to Adrian and Chase. I'm going to start with a quote. Carol Hanisch famously wrote that the personal is political. We have heard through the sharing of stories and poetry how deeply personal housing and homelessness are for survivors and other people living on the margins. Now we will turn to a conversation to better understand the connection between having or not having a place to call home and policy choices made by political leaders. I am joined by Adrian Roach, End Abuse Policy and Systems Analyst, and Chase Terrier, End Abuse Public Policy Coordinator. Adrian focuses on policy and systems related to housing, child welfare, and human trafficking. Chase is End Abuse's primary lobbyist at the state capitol. Hi, Angie. Hey, Angie. Thanks for having us. Thank you for yeah. joining me. So excited to be part of the inaugural End Abuse podcast. This yes. is super exciting. Yes. Well, I'm so excited to be part of this with you. And though we'll be talking about housing policy and all the issues that surround it, I'd like to ask a question uh, that should drive how we frame the housing issue throughout our conversation. What does the word home mean to you? That is a great question. Um, I think to me, home really has to do with sort of the fundamental human dignity that all people deserve. And I think that's reflected in the work we do at End Abuse. Um, but, you know, just thinking about the place that we live, the United States, and just how much wealth and abundance we have generated uh, in this country, in this region, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to comprehend. And so the idea that, that we have created so much abundance and there are still people that, that don't have that dignity, that safe place to heal, to, to have their own place to explore their humanity, uh, is is really unfortunate. So when I think of home, I think about the fact that everyone deserves a home, a place to be safe and to be themselves. Um, so you know, if we can we can imagine uh, how many survivors would be empowered to stay safe and leave their abusers if we knew that as a community, as a society, we guaranteed that everyone had a home. So that's mm -hmm. really what it means to me. Adrian, what what does home mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, actually. Um, earlier this year, I actually purchased my first home. And as a first-time home buyer, <laughs> Congratulations. Really, yeah, you know, it was a very challenging, moving, life-altering experience. Mm -hmm. It was um, a wonderful experience. And now that place is where I go to heal. Just this last week, I was suffering from an illness. I went home. I took care of myself. I was able to regenerate, rest, heal. And I think about that because I think of all of the people who don't have that. Um, when we're talking, when we're talking about 
survivors of domestic violence, that home can actually become a living nightmare. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we need to think about today when we're talking about all these policies is how do we ensure that survivors have that that place where they can heal, that place where they can mm-hmm. feel comfortable and recover from what some, some terrible events and, and traumatic experiences that they've had to endure. Yeah. Sometimes when I think about taking a phone call and someone's looking for shelter here at End Abuse, I think, oh my gosh, what would have happened if I had not picked up that call to make that connection? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. Adrian, Chase, thank you both for sharing your perspective. Uh, home is a central focus for all of us. Um, that's why we must be aware of the policies or factors that prevent us from ex- accessing or, or staying in a safe and comfortable home. Adrian, I cannot believe that we are dealing with this crisis that goes back to 2008, but that makes total sense because we suffer from historical consequences from 200 years ago. So please tell us more about how we're still dealing with the ramifications of 2008. Yeah, so I think it's a big question. There's a lot of different ways in which we're dealing with those ramifications. I think um, right now the biggest concern is that there's a lack of housing supply out there. After 2008, houses were not being built. And so now what we have is just fewer housing options. They cost more than ever before. Folks can't get the kind of credit they need to secure housing. You have landlords who can't get the credit to do the repairs that they need to do on housing to enable enable them to rent it to folks. So I think that makes it all that more, much more challenging for us um, and, and, for, and challenging for survivors who are trying to access housing. Mm-hmm. When you look at the rural in, the, in the rural areas where we have a lack of housing in general, a lack of housing supply again because of 2008 largely, but just a lack of housing supply in general. And then we look at urban areas where some of these areas are gentrifying, costs are going up, folks are moving to those communities and driving out other folks. And so I think it, it, it just, all these different dynamics are at play and they make it really difficult for us to, for survivors to secure low-cost affordable housing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's absolutely correct. And the only thing I would add to that analysis um, is just that, you know, a lot of these problems that we're seeing sort of reverberating through communities in these very complex ways, they have to do not just with sort of these uh, piecemeal factors or just affordability. You know, a lot of this is very structural. It comes down to sort of the way that our housing system in America has been set up. And so you can look back, you know, um, even a few more decades into the past, you can look into the 80s and 90s when we had sort of this new bipartisan consensus about deregulating and creating this new financial market that was going to take over the world. And what ended up happening from that is that we allowed this new structure to sort of permeate our housing system in which you had speculators, Wall Street bankers, traders who were using other people's money, which more often than not for middle and low income people was tied to their home. They were using that money to sort of gamble. They were making these wild speculations and they were making a ton of money based on this system because of the way they were able to restructure it. So when we think about a lot of these problems and how, uh, how they're related to recessions and long-term trends, we sort of recognize that, that it's not enough to just 
build more housing. It's not enough to just put people in shelters and, and then wait for an apartment to open up. We really need fundamental, systemic, structural change that's focused on empowering people and protecting consumers, protecting people from the markets, uh, because survivors are almost always in this very economically precarious situation where they can be preyed upon both by their abusers, but also a housing market that, that is very adept at taking advantage of people who really need a loan who really need quick cash now to get out of the situation they're in, those are the people that have the most to lose and do lose the most when these types of type of economic changes happen. So it's really important that we look systemically uh, as well. And that's something that, that Adrian and I really try to focus on in our policy work. And I think I would just add that for survivors who are in shelter, shelter is an emergency solution. It's for folks who are in crisis, it's meant to be an emergency solution. It's not meant to be permanent. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact is, if the lack of available and affordable housing, survivors are staying there longer. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that means we have more and more wait lists. Um, folks can't get the help they need immediately when they are in crisis. And so our shelters are essentially serving as transitional housing. They are performing a different role than what they were originally intended to, to perform. So that's also a, a, a dynamic that has um, presented some challenges for us recently. It's yeah. a really good point. I don't think that people realize to what extent the housing crisis intersects with domestic violence and the need for shelter. And I totally agree that everyone deserves a safe home to live in. Why is housing such an important issue for survivors? So I think housing is critical because, as I said earlier, home is the place we go to heal. It's the place we feel safest generally. And for survivors, not having a home or not having a place to go can be the thing that prevents them from leaving. And that, of course, exposes them to continued abuse, um, even more dangerous threats. And so ensuring that survivors have an alternative, have a place to go that they feel comfortable and safe, that doesn't feel like an additional stressor on top of the stress that they're already experiencing is really critical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is there. There are so many statistics out there, and all you all you have to do is is take a look at them. I mean, um, according to Safe Housing Partnerships, eighty percent of homeless women with children have previously experienced domestic violence. So that's an, that's a really um, sort of astounding number when you think about it. Fifty-seven uh, percent of all homeless women report that domestic violence is the direct cause of their homelessness. So, um, you know, even even with our understanding of the experience of survivors and sort of knowing what their needs are, we can also just look at the numbers and see that the immediate crossover between these two issues is just enormous. Uh, so, it's really important that when we're talking about ways to empower victims to stay safe, um, looking for ways to make sure that survivors have all those resources they need, housing has got to be at the top of that list. So if you're a mother and you're experiencing domestic violence and you either take your kids to a homeless shelter or nowhere or you stay, you're probably going to stay maybe. I mean, I, I understand right. what you're saying. Yeah, when you, and you, can, then you get an understanding yeah, of, of just how life-altering these decisions are. I mean, yeah. I think thinking back to Renee's story, um, just as a great example of how children are impacted by these issues as well, mm-hmm. that it's we have to think both about survivors and their families, that whether a child is forced into homelessness or mm-hmm. is exposed to domestic violence in their home, either way, that's going to have such long-lasting impacts on their ability to, you know, health and develop in a healthy way. I don't think people realize that the number of children in shelters is often a result of domestic violence. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and I think I would just add that depending on what resources that are, you know, are available in the community, that can really contribute to the survivor's decision to leave too. If there is a shelter available, they may feel comfortable leaving. I know I've spoken with survivors who've said, I didn't feel comfortable going to the shelter. If there are other housing options, if there's transitional housing options, um, rapid rehousing is another housing program that can be available, or just available apartments or um, safe homes that they can turn to or go to where they can, um, their address and their location can be held confidential. All of these things are really critical in ensuring that someone feels safe leaving. Rapid rehousing, can you say more about that, Adrian? So rapid rehousing is just a type of program that um, is supported by the federal government. It is a program that allows survivors or people who are experiencing homelessness to enter in for up to 24 months. They receive additional supportive services and case management throughout that period, but then they also get to have their name on the lease. Mm. So once that period is over, they can transition and have that home all to, the, all to, their, all to, their sel- all to themselves. And so um, it can be a really positive program for folks. Hmm. Wow, thank you. So as a policy team, are there specific policies that you'd point to for people interested in advocating for improvements to our housing system? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of proactive policies that we can look to that we know uh, would empower survivors to stay safe. But it's also really important, um, you know, as as members of the policy team, I think Adrian and I realize that it's not enough to just look forward and sort of pontificate about what we think ought to happen. We have to look back as well and try to take stock of how previous legislation, especially recent uh, legislation from the past, has impacted survivors. And so I think um, looking sort of at the landscape of housing in Wisconsin over the last few cycles of the state legislature, what we've seen is a really steady rollback of tenants' rights in favor of sort of making it easier for landlords to do what they want to do when it comes to how they handle their housing and how they handle their tenants. So um, what that's done has made it a lot harder for survivors to easily access and maintain stable housing. So sort of looking at those policies and the implications they've had on survivors, we start to get a better picture of what uh, safe housing policies might look like in the future. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would just add more specifically, when we look at the application process for renting an apartment, it's a complicated process. There are background checks that are run on folks. There are credit checks. And we know that survivors are often victims of financial abuse, and that can harm their credit. It can also, um, if they have been evicted or if they have been... if they have been arrested for any reason that's related to their abuse, that can also have a negative effect. That can be a, a, on their record, and so it can make it really difficult for them to rent an apartment. In addition to the background checks, the credit checks, re- additional documentation is required, things like driver's licenses, and all these different, d- different documents that a survivor may not readily have available to them. And that makes it really challenging. And we're also, you know, I think we're also seeing increased uh, restrictions placed on housing. So not only are we limiting tenants' rights, but as Adrian mentioned, we're implementing harsher asset restrictions. So in order to get housing, you have to prove that you know you have uh, this you know this amount of uh, money in your bank that you can sustainably you know afford an apartment. And then by the same token, we've also seen with affordable housing units, so housing that's actually intended for people who are struggling financially, we're doing the opposite. We're testing them and saying, oh, you have too much. 
you know, you, you don't belong in this housing because you have a car. Mm. Your car is worth more than, you know, X amount of money. Therefore, mm-hmm. you really don't need this housing. But we know, of course, for survivors, oftentimes, even if on paper it might seem like, yeah, you have a house, your name's on a, you know, a, a mortgage, you've got a car, but you probably have no access to those resources whatsoever. So a lot of these policies end up discriminating against survivors um, who don't actually have resources, who don't have uh, the economic stability to to access housing. And so we have the erosion of tenants' rights. We have house-related policy changes that have affected housing. And can you explain more about how these changes specifically impact survivors? Yeah, I mean, so actually I was going to just mention, too, in addition to state policies that impact survivors when it comes to housing, there are local ordinances that are that are affecting survivors as well. And one of those is nuisance ordinances. A nuisance ordinance is essentially a policy that a local community can enact, a city council can enact, that essentially says that it's on the landlord, it's a landlord's responsibility to um, ensure that there are not there aren't nuisances or there aren't um, a number of different arrest calls or there aren't a number of different police calls to a particular housing development. Um, so, for instance, if you have an active situation of domestic violence and there are repeated calls to the police and they're coming to that apartment regularly, mm-hmm. the landlord then, it's their responsibility to avoid a fine on them to evict that individual because that is deemed a nuisance when that happens. So that is extremely harmful. Then that is an eviction on the survivor's record, and it makes it harder for them to get their own apartment down the road if they are in, you know, wanting to leave. You can imagine how a victim of stalking uh, might be affected by a policy like mm-hmm. that. And that, you know, that really gives you a sense of how these problems are systemic, that the financial situation is related to the criminal record, is related to the, you know, their record of uh, police interaction. All of these things come together to form what is effectively a wall between survivors and safety. Wow. So aside from advocating for better policies, what can we do to ensure survivors have access to safe, affordable, comfortable, and stable homes? Great question. Yeah. And I don't think one of the things that we overlook often is just the community obligation to other people in the community, to their citizens, to ensure that people have safe housing options, to ensure that we're not putting onerous policies on people and and preventing them from breaking free from an abusive situation. Um, You know, community obligation is a critical component of that, and it's not just about supporting survivors in your community. Um, It's it's about supporting them directly through financial support of local shelters and other programs that offer housing services. Um, But it's also about um, supporting all of those different agencies that support survivors. Um, As I said, you know, those housing providers, um, your local public housing authority, all of these different agencies, uh, it, it really takes community support of all of those different agencies to ensure that they're functioning well. Yeah, and, and I would, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think community support also means building collaboration. That's one thing that we really focus on at End Abuse. You know, we have staff dedicated to coordinated community response. Um, even within our policy team, we do a lot of that. Adrian does a lot of MOU development at the county level, and these are all methods to increase collaboration in communities to make sure that, um, you know, these agencies aren't siloed, that that everyone's communicating that needs to be communicating. Because like we said, this, these are systemic issues. Survivors, mm-hmm. we can't just solve these problems in, in one issue area. We have to be broad in our scope. Right. 
That sounds great. So how do programs go about building partnerships in their communities, um, you know, at the city level, at the right. town level, at the state? How do we do this? Yeah, well, it's all about civic engagement. Uh, and I think one thing that's been really exciting about the last couple of years in, in Wisconsin and around the nation uh, is that people are really excited about getting more civically engaged. And so we want to support people who, who are interested in taking those actions. Sometimes it's just making a phone call calling your state legislator, calling your city council members, calling, you know, the mayor's office and talking about some of these issues, asking them what they're doing to support survivors of domestic violence. Maybe it means attending city council meetings. Maybe it means going to public hearings um, and, and making sure that your voice is part of the discussion that's going on. But it also has to do with, you know, some of the, some other areas of our society that don't feel quite as related. So maybe it's corporate partnerships. Maybe it's looking for ways that businesses in your area can get involved in supporting shelters and, and building some of those connections as well. But there are all sorts of public meetings, public forums, public hearings, uh, where people can go get directly involved in some of these issues. So um, we need more volunteers, we need more community members that are really dedicated to these issues and are dedicated to using their platform or whatever resources they have to make these connections. This is what we mean by community-based response to domestic violence. I think it's important to note, too, that when we live in a community, we all have an obligation that we owe to one another. And supporting that means supporting the provision of new shelters, supporting the provision of new housing resources. Um, again, supporting your local nonprofit organizations who are doing that work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something we always have to keep in mind. Yeah, domestic violence is in every community. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So it's not a question of, oh, is it happening in my neighborhood or not? It is. We know it is. Um, so we all have to sort of put our heads together and make sure we're taking care of one another. And shedding light on some of these things that are happening in your own community that you may Absolutely. not be aware of. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Adrian and Chase, thank you so much for sharing these, this information and these helpful tips. I want to conclude our discussion by talking about shelter. Uh, shelter is what many people think of when you think of domestic violence services. Uh, what was the original tent behind providing shelter services? What do those services look like today? And what do you believe domestic violence shelters look like in the future? What would be your vision? Well, I think... Um, I'll let Adrian answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, shelter originally was this safe haven. It was this place to go in, in a time of crisis when there was no other resource in the community. And it's still that place. However, because of different things like the, the mortgage crisis and our, and our current affordable housing crisis, it, it doesn't quite operate that way right now. And so that makes it a challenge. And I think in the future, the way... Uh, shelter would look, ideally, in our sort of ideal vision of, of services, is that shelter is one step in or one service that is available, but not the only service available. And that shelter is available more readily throughout our state. I think the problem is there, just, there aren't that many shelters in our state. And ensuring that survivors have access to both shelter and transitional housing and rapid rehousing and affordable apartments all these different aspects, um, all these different diverse options that serve survivors' unique needs. Yeah, yeah Adrian's point, I think, is, is uh, a really important one, that every survivor's experience of abuse is unique. Mm-hmm. So there is no one-size-fits-all approach to these issues. There's no way that we can just 
build a new type of shelter and right. every survivor will be served well by that. We have to make sure that every option is on the table, uh, that every service is available, that we are always looking for unique and innovative ways to support survivors um, because we need to make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind in, when it comes to uh, solving these problems. I like that there's a multitude of options, right? Mm-hmm. People could it, it theoretically choose the one that best fits their situation, their family right. size. Yeah. Right. Um, to conclude, uh, what big takeaways can you provide to our listeners on the housing issue what's the one thing you want them to leave with today I think for me it's recognizing that homelessness and domestic violence are not separate issues Um, when I first came to this work I didn't realize how interconnected they were and now that I've been doing this work for years now I understand how interconnected they are I understand that homelessness is a systemic issue and it affects survivors it affects many people living in our communities and that we can't we can't approach those issues as if they're separate and they have they certainly require different solutions we all we all know that that different diverse services are needed depending on a person's unique needs but we do need to recognize that they're interrelated that they intersect Mm, thank you i think the big takeaway from me for me is that um housing can feel really scary it can feel like a problem that is so big and so broad that there's no way we could possibly fix this crisis. Uh, I think Adrian will tell you, I have a tendency to be a bit cynical from time to time. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it's really important that I always remember and have, you know, wonderful colleagues that are reminding me that we can do this. Mm-hmm. It feels big, it feels broad, and it is, yeah. but that doesn't mean it's an unsolvable problem. It doesn't mean that we don't know what direction we want to be headed in, and it doesn't mean that we don't know what strategies we can employ to accomplish some of these goals. So there are a lot of fantastic people in this state and all around this country who are really working hard on these issues. They're raising awareness about homelessness, about domestic violence. Uh, we heard wonderful survivor stories and poems today that I think speak to that very uh, important reality. And so we just need to continue on the path that we're on. We need to build those connections, speak out about these issues, get involved, um, and support each other. And, and always be, as much as we can, be that positive person who's talking to your cynical coworker and saying, it's okay, we can do this. We can, we can make it out of this. And I would just add to that, too, that housing is, is an issue that affects everyone. Yeah. Right? right. And I think sometimes it seems like this nebulous, big topic that... It almost seems too complex to absorb and to advocate on, but it is a really critical issue that affects all of us. Mm-hmm. And so we're stronger together, right? Yeah. And as a group, um, housing providers, domestic violence service providers, advocates, activists, survivors, all coming together around this issue, that is really powerful. And that's really what we need to focus on if we're going to have see any significant changes at the policy level. Well, Adrian Chase, thank you so much for sharing your enthusiasm and your expertise on this issue. I hope people are energized by listening to this podcast. I know I learned a lot, and I work with you every day. So thank you. Thank (laughs) Thank you for shedding light. Thank you, Angie. Thanks, Angie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much to Adrian, Chase, and Angie for that interview. Uh, It was just a really great way to dive into the policy angle of such a complex issue. Um, And I think it it highlighted how so much from the past connects to how things look now, um, which is just a reminder that what we do now impacts how housing looks for survivors in the future. Um, So I want to thank everyone involved in the creation of this podcast, particularly Renee, who has gone above and beyond in offering her time and her story 
and her warm presence and energy we're all just really lucky to have shared this space with you so thank you for everything as we wrap up we want to make sure that our listeners know how to stay involved on this issue of housing and just get connected with the coalition more generally Um, we're releasing this episode actually a full year after initially recording because sometimes projects take a little longer than planned. Um, But since recording, we've had two new amazing policy experts step into the coalition to continue Adrian and Chase's work. Um, So Abby Sweats is now our policy and systems analyst taking over for Adrian. And Jenna Gormel is our director of public policy and systems change doing similar lobbying work to what Chase was doing. Uh, They're continuing policy work on housing, and in fact, we're releasing this episode in conjunction with our brand new report on this topic, which is called There's No Place Like Home, a housing research project measuring the effectiveness of housing services in Wisconsin for survivors of domestic abuse. Um, It provides an overview of the landscape that survivors face when they're trying to access housing, and it goes into policy implications as well. There's there's a lot in the report, so definitely check that out in our show notes or on our website at endabusewi.org. Another great resource is the December 2018 issue of the Coalition Chronicles, which is our educational journal. Uh, That features several programs from around the state and survivor stories, including Renee's, in fact, and it provides a window just into housing across Wisconsin. Um, So that's also available in the show notes and on our website. Um, We'd love for you to keep in touch with the coalition. You can follow us on social media. You can sign up on our website to receive emails, um, including action alerts, which tell you when there's an opportunity for advocacy. Um, And finally, we encourage advocates who are working with survivors who might be experiencing some of the housing legal challenges that we talked about, things like eviction for acts of domestic abuse or stalking, uh, to use the legal technical assistance from end abuse. There might be laws that protect survivors from these practices, so please be in touch if that's something that our legal experts here at End Abuse can provide help on. If you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know. We want to keep getting you connected to topics that impact survivors in any way that works best for you. Um, So you can provide feedback by subscribing to our podcast. Um, We always welcome feedback through our contact us forum on our website as well. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. 